we invite you to this coming week's message of Good Theology, a podcast ministry of the Good Theology Project, a mission of ministry to seek, sow, and spread God's kingdom of love here on earth. We cannot wait for someone else to do later what God has already called us to do here and now. To learn more about the Good Theology Project, visit us online at goodtheology.life. Whoever you are, grace and peace to you. This week, our message draws from the lectionary for Monday, November 16th. Our text comes from the second chapter of the prophet Habakkuk. It comes from the second chapter from the letter of James. And it comes from the 16th chapter from the gospel of our Lord, according to Luke. A link to the scripture is available in the description of this episode. But before we delve into God's word, let us center ourselves and our intentions. Please say this prayer along with me. The words are also available in the description of this week's episode. Almighty and everlasting God, our ears to hear you, our eyes to see you, our behavior to share you. Glory be to you, God, source of all being, incarnate word, and Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. If you're listening to this podcast, the chances are you range in either knowing me very well or perhaps not at all, but someone told you about this podcast and you thought you'd give it a go. Well, if we don't know each other very well, I should tell you that part of my call to ministry, the reason I've dedicated my life to God and to the church, is because I believe we can be better people. Yes, with God's help, but, but that we have the ability to be better that God believes in us, so we should believe in us. I started Good Theology with one primary passion, to give believers in Jesus the tools and inspiration to manifest God's kingdom of love here on earth. It sounds really illustrious, maybe, but at its core, it's just a labor of trust as much as it is faith. Not only that I believe in God, but that I trust in his design of us. That no matter how much we may stumble, the great I am created something that he called good. It's when I encounter scriptures like the one we're looking at this week that I dwell on my actions and that rely on that faith and trust. I don't have a physical space and people's eyes to look at to see if God's work uh, is, is looking back at me. I just have to trust that I'm following God's will and that my words might resonate, that I might be of service to you, the listener. I'm saying all this because I think as a listener, you deserve to know a little about who you're listening to, but also because... Like I said, this episode's scriptures are particularly provoking towards action. The prophet Habakkuk says in chapter 2, verse 4, Vatzedek be'emunato yichyeh, but the righteous by his faith shall live. And it's those few words which tug on me so deeply. Those words which inspired my question and the title for this episode's message. Do we live 
by our faith. Those three Hebrew words, Vatzedek, Be'emunato, Yechye, carry with them a powerful conviction. And it's not just a conviction of the Old Testament, the scriptures of the Hebrew Bible. No, they, they're echoed over and over again by every New Testament author and by Jesus himself. Doesn't John say in 1 John 4 that if we do not love, we do not know God? Doesn't Paul say in Ephesians to walk in love as Christ loves us? Doesn't Jesus say to drink the living waters and receive everlasting life? Well, we get it here in our reading from James 2, uh, T-O-O, also, um, but yet we're also reading from James chapter 2, so I guess that's a twofer. Uh, I've got a corny sense of humor. You'll learn to like it. Um, but before we go to James, let's, let's go to the gospel. So what does Jesus say about this? Well, the gospel for this episode, Luke 16, in this part of Jesus' journey, he's been preaching to the crowds, to the disciples, and actually even to the Pharisees, to these religious leaders who care more about following the rules and the status quo than they do about true spiritual enlightenment. In this part of chapter 16, Jesus is actually addressing the Pharisees. The parable that he's telling them concerns a suffering poor man and a rich man. Now, it's super rare for Jesus to name anyone in his parables, but he names this poor man, and the name he gives is Lazarus. Maybe it's a reference to his good friend Lazarus, whom Jesus later raises from the grave. Maybe, or, or maybe it's an allegory, because the name Lazarus means God has helped, and he's about to make a point about who is and is not going to be favored by God. And, spoiler alert, it's this Lazarus guy. Either way, in his parable to the Pharisees, Jesus explains that both the suffering poor man and the rich man, they both die and are both in an afterlife. But the afterlife that they have are very different experiences. Lazarus, the one whom God has helped, is up with Abraham. This same Abraham from the book of Genesis and is in heaven. Now, to an Israelite, to these Pharisees, Abraham is the original receiver of the promise of God, the, the one whom God bestowed his blessing and the inheritance of these people. And Lazarus is with that guy in heaven. Meanwhile, the rich man, who is never named, is suffering, knowing that he lived his life without righteousness and that it's too late for him. This rich man calls out to Abraham because he wants to save the ones that he loves, his family who are still alive, from the same fate that has befalled him. And so we pick up with verse 27. The rich man said, Then Abraham, I beg you to send him to my father's house, um, the ghost of Lazarus or, or Lazarus' spirit, for I have five brothers that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, replied, they have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, 
neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, let's take a sidestep here. And this is how I know God has a sense of humor um, and has inspired these words in Scripture. Because Lazarus' raising from the dead actually happens in the Gospel of John uh, in chapter 11 and chapter 12. And Lazarus was raised, and then the Pharisees and the elders came to actually try and kill Lazarus because he was raised from the dead. In Luke, we get this this parable um, then in John, there's this proof positive that the people want to kill him because he was a living miracle. Jesus's point in Luke, one you see played out in real time, or not in real time, but in scripture, right, is that no miracle that is witnessed is going to change someone's behavior. Heck, I mean, God delivered the Hebrews out of Egypt by 10 plagues and separating the waters, and they still built a golden idol to worship instead. Jesus' point is that they haven't been changed by God's words. If they haven't been changed by God's words delivered through the prophets, then no witnessed miracle is going to change their ways, even one as powerful as bringing back the dead. Why? Well, James says it in verse 19. Even the demons believe and tremble. Belief alone doesn't make us righteous. In Romans, Paul says we are justified by our faith, but not that we're righteous by it. The subtle difference, the the thing that actually keeps Paul and James on the same page when so many people think that that they differ, is that small but critical note. It's that living by our faith, which is what makes us righteous. We are justified through our faith, but only righteous if we actually live it out. Believing in God, believing in Jesus, gives us access to so much more of the glorious miracles and grace that God has ready for us. But righteousness, that takes us putting our faith into behavioral practice. It takes living it. But our stubbornnesses, they are not an easy ship to change the course of. You know, I just heard this morning a pastor from London preach that we rely too heavily on this immediate instant gratification from God. And while I am one of the first people to promote the powerful experiences God and Jesus, God, you know, creates for us, these life-altering moments where we encounter Jesus and the divine, there is always the ability to not live into our potentials. If these were light switches, then it would have been done already. But free will gives us this. Free will keeps us from something sometimes. So if Jesus is reminding us point blank to look at ourselves and wonder if we're living out our faith, that if our behaviors don't reflect our beliefs and that the wisdom of scripture, then, then what should we do? Jesus ends that parable and moves on. Now, don't get me wrong, I may have ended last episode on a more somber note, but rest assured, I'm not going to do that twice in a row. Even if we can't find part of that answer to the question in Luke's words, we can find them in James's. Jesus's younger brother was the son of Mary and Joseph after Jesus was born. Uh, And after Jesus was crucified, James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. 
he, more than any other biblical author, was vehement that Jewish ideals needed to be remembered. He saw Jesus not just as the Son of God, but also as the mightiest Hebrew prophet, the continuation of thousands of years of history and relationship with God. So how do we find inspiration and comfort in James's words when after reading the gospel we're likely to feel self-conscious in the midst of our introspections? In verse 22, James writes, Faith was brought to completion by the works. And he lists Abraham being willing to sacrifice Isaac and Rahab trusting the two Israelite messengers. Now, there are other examples he could have given, but James chooses these two very important ones to share the wisdom of Jesus and the tradition. First, we get an example of both a man and a woman, meaning that this isn't a specific to one gender or sex, that this applies to all of us. Second, it takes risk. It takes being willing to go out on a limb for something that seems scary. Abraham risked his very family, and Rahab risked her life and city. Third, it takes trust. Trust in something greater than yourself. Abraham and Rahab trusted in God over what they could see and hear and touch, over their own egos. And fourth, it takes intervention. When Abraham was about to sacrifice, sacrifice Isaac, an angel intervened and stopped him. And Rahab made sure that the messengers promised to intervene on her family's behalf to the invading army. It takes others grabbing our hands to hold on to us when we make those leaps of trust and risk. So how do we do that? We actually see it all the time. Um, now, when you learn how to jump out of a plane, you're strapped to your instructor. And when I was a diver in college and when we would learn new dives, the most common experience would be for our coach to call us out. She would scream when we would need to come out of the rotations because sometimes when you're in the midst of it, you get disoriented and don't know which way is up. Those are maybe more rare examples. But what about when you learn how to drive and you're young or new at any age and your passenger is the one giving you the advice? And when you go to the doctor and you don't have the medical degree, but you're putting your trust there. And corporate team building and that movie Mean Girls are famous for the trust fall, where you turn around and fall until someone catches you. James's point in using these examples is that righteousness, the faithful behavior of the believer, is action that has been honed by trust, risk, and intervention. The Jesuits have a term for that. It's called contemplatives in action. It's an ongoing cycle whereby every now and then you have to stop and contemplate if what you did was actually in alignment with God's desires or if it was in alignment with your own ego. And then you make corrections and do the cycle all over. It's ongoing and it's done with spiritual companions, trusted friends, and the Holy Spirit. You know, I was watching a TV program earlier and the character was complaining all about the Spider-Man reboots. 
she went on and on about how there were too many reboots about Spider-Man. But it occurs to me that reboots are sometimes exactly what we need. We need to try things slightly differently over and over, taking account and reviewing them each time until we get them more and more perfect. Because as long as we take a truthful look at the way we acted before, then we should be taking risks, trusting in the voice of the Spirit, and making sure we have someone to intervene on our behalf. Then we might just live out our faith after all. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Good Theology. To learn more, please find us online at goodtheology.life.